Thank you for joining me for this podcast of Millinery Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Today's podcast is with Alison Lines. Alison is the winner of the Bezben Humor and High Design Millinery Competition hosted by the Milliners Guild. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for making this episode possible. Be Unique Millinery, The Essential Hat, House of Adorn, Hatter's Millinery Supplies, That Millinery, Lifted Millinery, Hat Academy, Hats by Lico, Hat Mags, Louise McDonald Milliner, Milliner Australia, Best Western Apollo Bay Motel and Apartments, and Judith M. Millinery Supply House. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes, which is in your podcast app or through our website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I'd like to invite you to show your support through becoming a patron of Millinery Info. There's quite a lot that goes into producing, recording, and publishing this podcast. And a way that you could show your support and appreciation is by signing up to be a supporter of Millinery Info through Patreon. It starts from just $5 per month. You can do this by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Millinery Info. This helps us continue to bring the content you see and hear from Millinery Info. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Alison. Thank you so much, Alison, for joining me today for this podcast of Millinery Info. And congratulations on your award-winning hat for the Milliners Guild competition. It's fantastic to have you here to talk about that today. But before we get to that, let's jump back to the beginning of how did you first become involved in millinery? Oh, gosh. Well, thank you so much for uh, such an honor to be on this podcast. My goodness, I've been listening to it for so long. And um, thank you so much. I The contest was such a interesting thing for me. Um, I've been around art, craft, handwork my whole life um, because my mom's an art educator and she's also an artist in her own right um, as a weaver. Uh, so I was always encouraged to be making something, doing something. There was always time for crafts and, and we had everything in my house, you know, um, paint to sculpture to pottery. Like we had a kiln at one point at my oh, wow. house. Um, fiber arts, weaving, needle felting. Um, yeah. So I, I was always compelled to make, and I always found myself in the making and, um, it's something that's just always been a part of me. And, uh, in high school, I really got interested, um, you know, as a teenager, I got interested in theater and going into college, going into university, I was thinking about going into anthropology and, I kind of made a split second decision to go into theater instead, which my parents said, okay, but we support you. Um, <laughs> so I did that. And um, I still kept a little bit of the anthropology because I, I minored in archaeology. So those are two pathways that still feed into each other for me. Um, in theater, I went to the University of Vermont where I was living at the time. You know, I didn't, I'm in Colorado now, but I, I grew up in New England in Vermont. Uh, for the most part of my life. I went to University of Vermont where it was kind of a small department, but growing. Uh, and it there wasn't really that sort of deep focus, uh, like programming where you could just focus on costuming or you could just focus on stage or direction. It was, you learn everything. Uh, so I was learning costuming. I was taking lighting courses. I was acting, I was directing. Wow. Um, and I was doing costuming and um, one of the specialty costuming classes 
I was very lucky. It was at the time, at least, I don't know if this is still true, but um, uh, I took my first millinery course in 2007 and it was a once every three years course. And it was the only undergraduate level millinery course in the country possibly, or just regionally, something yes. like that. It was, it was really rare to get it at an undergraduate level. Yeah. And I said, oh gosh, yeah, I want to try that out. And um, for whatever reason, it really clicked with me and in a different way from the rest of the costumes that I was making, you know, I've done a um, little bit of everything and I, I work making corsets in a day job now as well. So I still do other types of costuming and sewing, but um, it was really funny because I really felt like sculpture and, and 3D arts were my weak point <laughs> or something I wasn't very good at. Um, and very frustrating, you know, pottery wasn't my greatest and sculpture wasn't my greatest, but hats made sense. Yeah. Um, I really just got very interested in it from day one, we made a bonnet and it was just, okay, I understand this. <laughs> Sorry, say it again. Diving in the deep end there with a bonnet, my gosh. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. It was a pretty basic style it was um just sort of a two-piece 1840s looking thing and it's so much glue and really inexpensive fabric you know basic cotton very cheap lace but um for whatever reason the buckram was really interesting to me and the wire was really interesting to me and um just the three-dimensionality of it was so interesting in terms of oh gosh this flat thing became this very structured thing. Um, and, you know, my second piece was a tricorn hat and I just kept pushing as far as I could go with each, um, each different project we had in that course. And my final exam piece for that was actually a Roman centurion helmet. Um, <laughs> I pitched it to my professor. I said, could I do this? And he said something along the lines of, I wouldn't, expect anything less from you something like that like go for it um I used brooms for the crest and I just I just really sourced some really wild stuff for that project I was so hooked and um the summer after that course I uh worked uh at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival out here in Colorado and I had a position as a stitcher but also assistant milliner and the milliner uh who was the head milliner at the time she had been working um, at the Metropolitan Opera and she taught me so much stuff that I definitely have really taken in and um, still refer to today, really important core skills from just that one summer. Um, and after that, I kind of went unconventional. I, for a lot of reasons, I, I decided not to do graduate work or go into you know, the more, more typical settings of theater or the, the really bustling places, you know, the, the whole American thing where it's like, go to New York, go to LA, you know, that, that wasn't for me for a bunch of reasons. And so I just kind of followed this spirit of strike out on your own and see where it takes you. Um, and, you know, part of that for me is really keeping the art of it in, um, in the craft as a whole. Uh, and for me, letting art lead the business and also so that I can keep it in my life as, and part of my life forever and not really worry about how long is this going to last? It's just letting it ebb and flow with my life, you know, whether it's the dominant part of my life at that time or not. 
um, just so it's always there. And I'll just keep pursuing different angles of it as long as I can. Fantastic. And let's, I'm busting to hear about this winning piece. So let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's go to that because that's one of your latest projects and yes. we're going to come back to your other amazing work. But if you could share with us first off the theme of the competition and then how you went on to interpret that. Sure. So uh, the theme being best Ben humor and high design. Uh, I was actually already familiar with the work of Ben Greenfield and the best Ben label. Um, just from doing tons of research for costuming over the years. Of course, I came across it at some point. Uh, and the whimsy really hit me. It was like just a point in my life where I needed that very much. And I wasn't really feeling up for, you know, making it uh, a large scale big deal for myself. Um, so I kept it actually really private as sort of a secret project just for myself that I was working on. And um, uh, I decided to use it, the competition as a, like a starting point, as a personal goal for myself, just to hopefully create a piece that I was really happy with. So I was really interested in using the competition as more of a personal project and jumping off point uh, for my own creations and kept it super close to myself and didn't talk about it widely. And, um, you know, when I, first heard about the theme, I was like, oh, that sounds like something I should enter. Uh, what would I make? And I really loved Best Ben's beaded hats, the, just the fully beaded pieces, like the Moonstone hats are just gorgeous. And I love the texture and simplicity of, you know, it's this one material, but it's got all this movement to it. And uh, I started thinking about beads in general. It's so different from anything else I do. And then I was like, oh gosh, he also did dice hats. <laughs> this could be using dice for role-playing games as beads. And I could do something Dungeons and Dragons themed, which is a huge part of my life as well. Um, and then it turned into, you know, dice hat, bead hat, beaded dice hat, oh gosh, what if there's a dragon? What if it's a dragon protecting its horde? And then it got very stuck in my head. And I finally, I, I think there was a day where I, I heard who the judges were and I thought, oh no, <laughs> why is this my idea? Because uh, it was a really vulnerable thing to put this incredibly personal and nerdy part of myself out there, you know, just just out there in general, let alone for judging. I said, oh, do I really make a Dungeons and Dragons hat and put it in front of Stephen Jones? And I just kept saying, yes, 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 I do that. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And so that's really it for the idea. Yeah. Um, I'd spent a lot of time in the pandemic sort of falling back on Dungeons and Dragons and, and getting more into it than I'd had free time for prior to the pandemic. And something I really love about Dungeons and Dragons is it's storytelling and it's, um, it's dynamic. You know, there's so many different ways you can play the game and there's so many different settings you can create and characters you can create. And I just thought, oh, that's such a good hat. You know, it's, it's really just the fantasy of anything goes. Um, and I really related to a lot of Best Ben's storytelling in his hats. You know, I looked at, um, there's these hats that are bullfighting scenes. And I really related to the really action scene, sort of diorama style of 
the bullfighter hats and I thought, oh, now I know what I'm going to do for posing this dragon and how it's going to all tie together. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of sketching. I, I think I, I, I did some like searching out of pictures, sort of making a Pinterest board of, of different dragons and um, looking through some of my Dungeons and Dragons book uh, books for different things um, that might inspire me. Um, but really, I just kind of saw this idea instead of an actual design. And um, I decided to kind of see what I could find. And dice were the first thing I had to solve. And so I started thinking about the dice really early on because that was the part that the entire rest of the hat hinged on for me. And conventional dice are too large for a hat. They were going to be just way too heavy, way too bulky, just not at all right for a hat. And so I found uh, these half scale miniature dice. And that's actually what's on the hat is they're smaller. Um, and they're, they're designed for people who uh, like sort of the halfling or hobbit type <laughs> characters. Um, people are crazy about dice. Oh my gosh, Dungeons and Dragons, you have, you have people who just collect them. Um, I am well, I have not been one of those people, but I understand it very thoroughly. They're very pretty. Um, <laughs> and I just thought, oh gosh, they really have that sort of moonstone look. There's different finishes, they're different types. Uh, and the half scale worked perfectly. And then the next solution was, okay, now how do I turn them into beads? And how do I, how do I make them go on the hat without gluing them? Because I just, I don't use glue much at all. Um, in what I do, because I really believe in doing what, you, like being able to undo what you do and restyling is really important to me. And I think that comes from theater as well, because you always want to be able to remake something. Um, so I ended up, there's 140 dice on that hat and I hand drilled oh, wow. every single one. <laughs> um, and I did it at a really shallow angle so that you couldn't see the hole. I didn't just do a through and through. I got really creative about, you know, there's there's seven different styles of dice on the hat and you had to figure out for each one, okay, where do I drill to get it? So that it's sort of just posed on there and not obviously stitched on. Um, so those were like the first two hurdles I had to overcome. They're some and big hurdles. <laughs> yeah, not, definitely not like your usual problem. <laughs> um, Definitely not when it comes to hats. Uh, <laughs> so then it was solving the dragon. I really approached this whole thing as like, there, there's like three different pieces. There's, there's the base, there's the dragon, and there's the dragon's wings. Those were really sort of, I had to break it down to think about it. Um, and the dragon went through a ton of different thoughts. Uh, I didn't know what material I was going to make it out of initially. For a while, it was like, oh, maybe it'll all be leather. And then for a while, it was, well, maybe I'll do just like cinema. And then I was like, oh no, we should go crinoline. That sounds really fun. And it's not something I've really worked a lot with before, just a little bit. Um, so it was a bit of a interesting challenge for myself that I just kind of decided to tackle. And um, I had one friend who I'd really let in on it and said, hey, can you give me some opinions about this dragon? And so I just took a piece of crinoline and um, the thrift store bowl that I blocked the pill base on for um, the little button base of the cinema. And I had, you know, um, my model head and I put 
taped the bowl on top. And I said, do you like the dragon going like this? And I kind of swirled it around and I said, or do you think the dragon should go like this? <laughs> and, and she helped me a lot figuring out how to pose the dragon. And once I knew that, um, and I discovered how to swirl the tail in the back and I said, oh, well, that's quite a cool detail. I'm going to keep that. I want to make sure to include that. Uh, it all kind of came together where it's like, okay, now this is one piece and I've solved it and I can move on. Um, and then when I got into making, it, I was like, okay, now how do I finish the edges? Now, how do I make it look more like a dragon? And there was, there was a real balance of the, the hat itself, like the base is very busy. There's a lot going on on the base and I wanted the dragon to read, but I didn't want the dragon to compete uh, with the rest of the hat, which is why, you know, it doesn't have an eye. I, I agonized for a long time. Like, does the dragon need an eye? Does it look, need to look more alive? Does it need fire coming out of its mouth? And really stripping back that element of it to sort of keep the fashion and modern, um, you know, silhouette to it really helped a lot. Because uh, I was able to go kind of wild with the with the horde base and keep the dragon itself just much more streamlined, and I think that ended up being pretty effective. Um, and the idea to do the veil across the face, uh, the crinoline veil style, it was I've loved seeing people do that in fashionable millinery. And it's not something I'd done. I said, oh well, that is perfect because that can be the body of the dragon. That's fewer pieces to put together. And I was really determined on that. And um, it took a little bit of a, a little bit of a play back and forth to really figure out how to get it just so. But uh, I'm really glad I went that angle. Because uh, otherwise, like my original design, it was so much different. Uh, just uh, it would have been too overdone and, and too, too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. <laughs> you know, too many elements trying to come together. And um, the wings were the hardest part. They were very different in my mind. And I had this whole design that when I started to actually get into the making and playing with the crinoline, it wouldn't do what I wanted to do. And I found I was really fighting it. And there was a point where I said, don't just scrap it. Don't fight it. What can it do? And I went and I went back and listened to the material and I said, okay, what can you do? What, what are you, what do you want to be? And I really ended up letting it speak for itself, which um, I would not have thought of <laughs> just in, if I were trying to force it into a design. Um, I, I definitely kept a lot of um, thoughts about balancing simplicity versus um, visual interest and uh, style versus story. And uh, I really relied on a piece of advice uh, that I learned in college um, or my professor said, you know, a, a good hat should look like it's been blown together by the wind. And it's something it's I always hold on to and really try to keep in mind when I'm trimming, especially, um, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about hiding stitches and, and making things seem very poised and effortless. And if you make it look too forced, it's just not right. So really taking the time to uh, sort of let them pose themselves and, uh, yeah, just have that sort of ethereal je ne sais quoi about them, but yeah, blown together by the wind. <laughs> That's stunning. It's a beautiful way of describing it as well. How long this is, there's so many details to this piece. Yeah. What, how long did this all take versus when you had the idea to win it, when you had to hit go and send it off into the world? <laughs> yeah, I think um, I heard about the contest 
pretty early on. I think they had announced it sometime in October. And I think I heard about it um, sometime around Halloween, maybe. It was pretty early on. And I think I had the idea uh, in mind within about a month. And I started doing um, dice experiments in the beginning of December. And uh, I kind of problem solved throughout December. And then I really took like the last week of December into the first week of January to make the piece. I spent a lot more time thinking about it than actually hands-on making it, except for the wings. The wings were like all hands-on, but um, the thinking took months. <laughs> and uh, the actual making, I was lucky it came together the way I really planned it. Um, and that's not how all my pieces go, but it worked for this one and I'm really glad it did. Oh, that's fantastic. And congratulations. It's so exciting. And Thank now you. it gets to um, uh, go on display. Uh, it's it's on display in uh, Texas, Texas. Uh, right now in Dallas at, um, there's a shopping center called North Park and they have a ton of arts uh, events and displays. And so there's this incredible display that they've put together, the Milliner's Guild, uh, with Texas fashion collection with all sorts of historical pieces like um and Stephen Jones lent a piece to be part of it and um there's a Balenciaga in there there's just all these very prestigious pieces and some full-on uh outfits on mannequins I believe there's like a Poochie piece in there it's very cool when I entered the competition the entering was the goal for me and I was like oh I made a piece that I love and I'm so happy I made it and I entered and that's fantastic. And I thought, you know, oh, if I make top 10, that'll really be something because it gets to go on display. And that's the part of this that I've, through the whole process, have been really excited about. I never, never even considered winning. <laughs> so this is all very surprising and overwhelming in a way to me. It's very exciting and hugely gratifying. And just, I never expected the incredible positive response this piece has really gotten. And I just... It feels good that it's this piece, you know, cause it's truly a piece of me out there. And I love that this is the one that I'm getting seen for. <laughs> that feels wonderful. It's fantastic. Well, it's such a creative piece and interpretation of the theme and to hear that the detail, the elements of construction is just amazing. So it's, it's very, a very deserved winner and should be celebrated. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me. And the other pieces, so this is one of just one of many pieces that you work and create on. Um, in your other millinery work, what do you get up to? Oh my gosh, really, truly all sorts, little bit of everything. Um, I'm interested in all hats, all types of hats, all types of headwear, all types of reasons. Um, I sometimes say I never make the same hat twice, but it's not really true. I've just made so many things once, um, but there's so many things I'd love to have the chance to make again. So hopefully some of those styles will come back around to me in those opportunities. Uh, but I've done sort of, you know, almost a bingo card of these different styles and pieces and, and reasons for making. And I'm just ticking them off one by one as I go through life here. I've done everything from uh, very strict historical replicas to less strict historical pieces <laughs> to, um, you know, I, I rep replicated a piece uh, for a local technical college. I've definitely done fantasy pieces 
various levels of costume for individual clients, cosplayers uh, who really want to recreate uh, a character. Um, of course, stage theatrical, a very little bit of bridal, which most of that's been rooted in historical as well, um, and some fashion work, which is uh, quite the range. It's it's sort of a spectrum, and you know, um, I've had pieces for opera, regional theater. I did a Broadway tour. Um, I would still like to really make a piece for film. I haven't done film yet. So that's on my someday list, I hope. Even just a small little piece, that would be great. Done that, love it. Um, just to have the chance would be really wonderful. Uh, and my clients have worn their pieces, you know, all over the world really. And sometimes I don't hear about it, but when I do hear about it, it's always very exciting. I always like to say, you know, my hats have way more fun than I do. My gosh, they go to all these places and do all these things. And I just, okay, yes. Well, I'm going to live through my hats then. <laughs> um, you know, I had one of my hats photographed um, on a musician for a magazine uh, that I kind of found out about in a weird way. It's just an online print. I was like, oh, look, I made that. That's very cool. And uh, one of my clients um, in costume was photographed for a book. So I know one of my hats is somewhere in a book. <laughs> People have worn my hats to Venice for Carnival and to Versailles for the Fate Gallant and just all these incredible places in Europe, um, along with so many different costuming events in the US, whether it's um, costuming conventions, comic conventions, all sorts of places. Uh, okay. And they're all a little bit different. So with your clients coming to you, do you have um, pieces that they're choosing from or do they come to you with a specific idea that you then work from? How does, how does that process work? It really depends. Some people are very specific and they know exactly what they want. And some people are like, I, I just need something like this. I need something along these lines. So my involvement, you know, varies based off of the starting point that they give me. Figuring out where on this spectrum of, you know, from very, very strict to historical work to uh, sort of fantasy, creative, go for the stars type pieces uh, a person wants to start from is sort of the first step. And we do loads of communication, just emails back and forth. I almost always work remotely. So if there's anything I've really had to learn <laughs> alongside hat making, it's how to communicate effectively over a distance. Um, and depending on what kind of piece somebody wants, it might be a lot of emails. It might just be a few emails and they want me just to kind of get creative and go for it. And they might be very specific uh, and want to make different edits here and there. So. Um, the time involved in a piece might be very different depending on what the client needs. And so for some like historical pieces that if somebody has a really clear idea what they want, um, we might be using sources like paintings or documents, uh, very specific sources. If somebody wants to go sort of fantasy, we might just have personal inspirations or really interesting like, oh, I want something based off of you know, nature, or I want something based off of uh, the ocean. I might, I might want something incorporated in that's, that's just a little less tangible than I really need this very specific cockade that was popular in this region in the 1830s. <laughs> um, so it really just 
depends. Um, you know, my, my college professor, another bit of wisdom from my college professor, he uh, taught us that, you know, a costume, in this case, the hat, it's the strongest visual representation of who a character is and what they stand for. Who is this magical professor? Are we allowed to name him? Oh, we can. His name is Martin Thaler. And in these wonderful creations that you're making of such a vast array of things, how much fabric do you keep on hand? How do you go about sourcing these, what might be very unique materials for these projects? Oh, gosh. Um, I love going to flea markets and antique shops and looking online. Um, I, t- I, I have very limited space. Um, I work out of one room in my home. Uh, so I try not to have too much, but I also try to really grab something when it's special, when I know it's special. Um, and I also, I, I also really know that you'll never see it again with some of these antique pieces. Like if you, if you don't go for it, you might not see it. And I have a lot of considerations as to what I do buy and what I don't buy. And, um, you know, for me, with the unpredictability of what kinds of designs and projects and types of hats I'm going to make, I don't necessarily keep a lot of any one thing on hand. I do a lot of, you know, to order um, type sourcing, Um, but I do definitely keep the special stuff if I see it. And sometimes I buy something just because I'll look at it and I'll see the hat in it. Like I'll already know, and then I'll design around the material uh, instead of grabbing a material and wondering what I can do with it. Sometimes I just see it and know, and those are the things I usually really grab immediately. (laughs) I'm really interested in sustainability. Um, I have a lot of concerns about, you know, global climate crisis and where we're headed. And I, I'm not the most productive milliner out there. And part of that is I just, really want to do quality over quantity. And from day one, I've really been fairly self-sufficient in terms of, um, you know, not doing more than I really need to. And, you know, I've never really done seasonal collections or anything that I end up with a lot left over. And if I do have something left over, I really try to remake or reuse for the most part. Um, but it's a hard balance, you know, um, especially for me where it's like, oh, I just want to learn everything. I just want to know all of it. Um, But when I first started out, I didn't even have, you know, a hat block. I'd learned on blocks uh, in college, but when I left college, I was like, oh, I don't have any hat blocks. And so um, I ended up just remaking a lot of hats. I would get secondhand and using those materials because I also couldn't afford a lot new. And having just limited kind of secondhand uh, stuff and parameters and not being able to do um, the latest and greatest really pushed me to push my materials and push my designs, uh, really expand the limits of what I was creating. And it made for some very interesting material discoveries and techniques. And I still use a lot of that um, in what I do today. And, um, you know, something I've always offered to people is if you have one of my hats and you want it repaired or redone, send it back to me. And just for the lifetime of the hat, I want it to be around longer than I am. Uh, you know, it's kind of the goal in every piece I create is that it's not just for one thing. It's, it's a piece that's really special. 
I like talking about the life of the piece too. That's a really lovely way of framing it. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the main things I do, <laughs> this was before the pandemic, but um, it's definitely something I really want to get back into doing. Um, I would just spend a lot of time when I was at like these antique shops, just finding the stall that was selling a lot of hats and just spend time looking at how they were made and what was used and getting all the sneaky tips just from looking at pieces and sneaking photographs. And, you know, I have a sort of a digital archive of things that I've noticed or um, it was something I started when I was researching for college for plays and stuff. I just started a decade by decade archive of uh, reference for myself. And so I'm, I'm always looking for new reference, unusual reference. And um, I'll just, I'll just, I'll be in there for like half an hour. My husband will be like, oh, come on, clock's ticking. <laughs> Can we move on? I'm like, oh, but this is so cool. I've never seen this edge finish before. I must look at it. <laughs> and I want to ask you of all these incredible projects, what is one besides the dragon obviously it's amazing yes. but what else has one of been, been one of your favorite projects to work on over the years you know i uh, i usually answer this question by saying tricorns are my favorite hat um they were really my first favorite hat because it was the second hat i ever made was this pirate a like absolutely ostentatious pirate hat and i loved it and i i think i wore it to a whole bunch of renaissance fairs and then i as I did more research, I realized that the silhouette has been in so many different decades and across men and women's styles. Like, um, gosh, I did a, a similar piece. It was like a bicorn that was um, sort of like a late 19 teens, early twenties inspired piece. I just love that those little cocked corners come up in so many different styles. Um, and I've made lots of them in lots of different styles at this point. Um, um, felt cloches, like 1920s style cloches, um, were one of the first things I really focused on uh, when I struck out on my own. And when I got my very first hat block, all I wanted to do were these really lovely pinch details in felt. And, you know, that was when I was using a lot of secondhand felts and remaking hats. It was an easy way to elevate the material and, um, you know, not necessarily like hide damage or anything, but um, just work with the good part of what was there. And uh, it added a lot of interest with not a whole lot of, you know, trim needed or anything. Um, so those are something I'll always love making. But um, the really weird answer to this is mortarboards, academic hats. Um, I got asked to make one on commission. Um, for an actual academic graduation setting yes. and it was a very unique one and it was such a problem to solve and I loved the whole process of figuring it out and there's so much engineering that goes into one of those and um you know I had worked on one um at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival as well that was more of a fantasy piece uh where we used foss shape to sculpt a face into the top of it Amazing. uh and so that was like a non-traditional one. And then I got to make a very traditional one, but with a modern silhouette uh, because it was, it was a hexagon rather than a square. It was very cool. And I had to learn like, oh, what do I, what do I actually make the board out of? And, and how do you actually attach the, the cap to the board? And um, lots of problem solving with that. I just yeah. loved it. And then I was beyond lucky 
to be asked to make another one, um, but as a cosplay piece for one of my regular cosplay clients. Yeah. And I just, it was this piece that I had the best time making that first one. I thought, oh, I'll never get to make one of these again. That was definitely a one-off. And to have been able to make two has been just really funny and really, really fantastic. Cause the second time around was just as fun. <laughs> What an interesting collection of pieces. You mentioned when you went out on your own. So when was Frontier Millinery born? And Yeah, so um, I graduated from college in 2008. And I think I started selling online uh, in 2009. I kind of opened a shop and I did a lot of um, soft fabric pieces, soft construction, um, a lot of fleece sort of winter wear type pieces. Um, and I was under a different name at that time. And I moved out to Colorado in 2011 and started trying out craft fairs and started trying out different settings. And, you know, it, the striking out on my own has been very like for good or ill, <laughs> lots of ups, lots of downs. Um, and I eventually came upon Frontier Millinery as a name um, back in about 2015. So I myself have been making hats since you know, I learned in 2007 and uh, I started selling in 2009. The Frontier Millinery itself has only been around since about 2015, but it's all me, <laughs> just me. <laughs> so this custom made sounds like such an exciting challenge to be taking on, but do you create pieces for, from your own designs or your own inspiration outside of those custom works? Oh, absolutely. And I have just an endless list of pieces I haven't made yet that uh, and designs that are just someday, someday. Um, some of them I even already have the pieces for. I just, I uh, need to find the time to do that. And it's, it's all about balancing how many custom pieces I'm making versus when I really get to express myself um, through millinery. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happened when I was first um, starting to try out craft shows, um, I did a, a really interesting show here in uh, the States in Chicago that um, it's called the one of a kind show. And I actually got selected for uh, a mini booth. <laughs> it was five feet by five feet, very small little space, um, but it was through Etsy. And um, I just made whatever I felt like making to take uh, for this little display. And I said, oh, I'll see, I'll see what people like. And it's this huge show where they um, you know, back when I was doing it, they, they said about 80,000 people would come through the show over four days It's just, and, and actually experiencing it was, it was packed. It was just constant foot traffic. It was unlike anything else. And, you know, I did so many different pieces for this and I had a really lovely response, um, from buyers there. And, um, I think it was on the last day, the person with the booth next to me leaned over uh, we were setting up before the, we were setting up before the doors opened and he said, I love watching your hats find their soulmates. And I just oh. thought, oh my gosh. And I've always held on to that because it's just, okay. I really understand that, you know, behind these hats there, there's people. And, you know, if I make something that's my own design, it's like, well, this is just someone I haven't met yet, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, it, that's one of my favorite little things that I've gotten uh, said to me over the years. And we were also asked at the same show, we had a workshop um, where it was about developing your brand 
and things like that and stuff that I, I really am like, my brand is just me. I don't, I'm not as interested in it. I'm not hugely interested in marketing. I just want to make really good work. And um, they directed us to really stop and listen to what our customers were saying or what people were saying when they came to your booth, when they picked up your work, when they looked at their work, what were they saying to the people shopping with them? What were they talking about? And I inevitably would get people who would come up and go, my aunt always wore hats or, you know, my grandmother was a milliner or, you know, I'd, I'd get these incredible deep conversations with people just out of who. And I realized that my word was nostalgia. And so I've always held on to that as well. That's great. That's an interesting way of approaching it as well to think about, well, it's not an interesting way that we should be considering as reading, reading the customer and mm-hmm. listening to what they're saying about what they're seeing in front of them. Yeah. There's a whole bunch about, you know, you know who you are and you can do your best to express that. But once it's out in the world, it really goes into the gaze of the people and, um, sometimes what people are saying about your work is way more interesting than what you think about your own work and can really help drive it in a very positive direction. And that's been helpful for me. Yeah. And what's something you're looking forward to working on next or exploring next? You know, one of the things I didn't learn in college was straw of any kind. And so um, anything I've done with straw has been self-directed uh, learning. I've sought out a lot of different, you know, courses or resources, um, or just looking at so many straw hats to figure out, oh, how, (laughs) how do we do straw? Um, and so I'm actually going to spend some time, uh, I think it's a hat Academy course that I have that I haven't, I, I bought it ages ago and I haven't had time to actually take it yet, but it's a Swiss braids. And I have some uh, vintage Swiss braid that I'd really like to make a boater style out of. And I think for spring, I'd, I'd really love to dip into boaters a little bit. Um, you know, I, um, I try to pay attention to what's going on in fashion as much as what is historically accurate or what different influences are. And uh, that way I can bring it to my different clients and sort of merge those two things together. Uh, One of the courses I was able to take, it was an online workshop with um, Denise Wallace Spriggs here in the States. And she offered a virtual uh, weekend workshop uh, with working with Straw Braid. And I finally learned how to do some of that work. Uh, It's a real gap that was missing. And I was able to use some hemp braid uh, to create a bonnet. And now um, the math makes sense and I can apply it to all different styles. So I'm actually hoping uh, to kind of cut into some of the the stock of antique um, braids and vintage braids that I've been collecting in anticipation of knowing how to work with them. Um, So I'm hoping I can do more work with those in the next year as well. Oh, how fun. That sounds like a great place to be exploring next that will be such a compliment to all of your other work. It's been so fantastic to talk to you today, Alison. Thank you so much for sharing about your amazing dragon piece and all of your other work. It's been fantastic to chat hats with you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Millinery Info with Alison. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for their support of this series. Judith M. Millinery Supply House, Millinery Australia, 
Louise McDonald Milliner, Best Western Apollo Bay Motel and Apartments, Hat Mags, Hats by Lico, Hat Academy, Lifted Millinery, Hatters Millinery Supplies, That Millinery, The Essential Hat, House of Adorn, and Be Unique Millinery. You can check out a link to each of these businesses in our show notes on your podcast app or through the Millinery Info website. If you would like to become a patron of Millinery Info, there are two tiers available. A podcast sponsor, which means your business or event is mentioned in the podcast. A link included on the Millinery Info website and in the monthly newsletter. We also have a supporter tier. It's a little more than shouting us a coffee per month and a way of saying thank you for the content you see and hear on Millinery Info. If you have any questions about becoming a Patreon, please let me know. Otherwise, head across to www.patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and I look forward to talking hats with you again soon.